like I said, the title is just simply freedom in him. We have victory in him. And now we see freedom in him. Religion always offers this yoke of bondage, essentially. Religion of any sort. It could even be like an Eastern mystical type of religion. It could be ascetism, which we're going to look at. He, he talks about different ideas. It could be Jewish legalism that was infiltrating the church. We call these the Judaizers. The whole point is religion offers a bondage or a weight or a yoke around the neck. But he's saying in Christ you have this freedom. But what does that freedom mean and what does that look like? And so this book uh, in Colossians, he really plays off of Romans 14, the book of Galatians. There's, there's so much here. I will probably not answer every question you have regarding this, but I do think that Paul really gets detailed here, which is important for us to slow down and look at. This, these verses, you could say, this is what makes us different. You're like, why are there different denominations? This is a verse that it kind of explains. This is why we're not Seventh-day Adventists. This is why we're not part of the Church of God. This is, explains, I think, some specific belief systems that are different. So I want to read actually to you Galatians 5, verse 1. Here's what, here's what Paul says. For freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul is introducing this idea of freedom. We're free from sin. We're not free to sin. We're free from sin. He goes, use this freedom you have to love each other. So I want to look at freedom in him, and what does this mean exactly? So um, why don't we do this? Why don't we pray? Actually, let's read. We'll read them. pray. Let's do that. It's probably better to read the scripture first. All right. Colossians 2, verse 16. We're going to read it, and then we'll uh, pray. Colossians 2, verse 16. Paul says, Therefore, in light of all that being nailed to the cross, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Everyone say amen. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. He's be connected to Jesus, the head. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, let's jump into it. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for, for your word. It truly is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. God, we thank you so much for Paul, for what you did in his life, for how you used him to reach um, the Gentiles. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we get to benefit from these teachings, from this message. Lord, we just ask that um, you would today speak to my heart, our hearts, help us come to, um, to you with just an open hand, maybe even closed-fisted on some ideas. I ask that we'd come to you, Jesus, and say, Lord, not what I think, uh, but, but would you speak, Lord? Would you bring clarity, Lord? And um, we just thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that everything we need is found in you. From victory to freedom, everything is found in you. 
that as Paul said, that I through the law died to the law so that I might live to God. We want to live to you, Lord. And so we ask that you would just speak and move in your precious name. Amen. You know, the word freedom obviously is a very nuanced word and sometimes a tricky word. Like, what is freedom? And it's funny how my perception of freedom has changed in so many ways throughout the years. You know, when you think about being 16 years old and um, you got your license and you can drive, and you, when you think about that idea of like, I remember that, it's so free, and like, oh, I, can, I can leave, I can get out of here, like I'm free, I don't know, it's just, it so, feels so good. And then you're like, you know, when you're 16, you're like, I just wanna, I just wanna leave the house, I wanna spend some money and have fun, I wanna hang out with my friends, I wanna get out of here. Right? And what discipline was is, discipline is you're going to stay home, can't leave the house, can't hang with your friends. Freedom was like, get me out of here. It's funny how what was once um, freedom to me or, and what was once like losing my freedom is now like true freedom. Like meaning at 35, you know, freedom is I want to stay home. I don't want to spend money and I don't want to be with friends. I just want to be alone. It's, it's just funny. Like when you're thinking of like 16, like I'm free to do what I want. And you're like, I don't know. My de- your desires really do change. And freedom's just funny that way. It's interesting how, how God, um, I think people are free, but in reality, they're slaves. People who are in prison cells right now are probably more free than others. You know, in Acts chapter 16, there's an amazing story where Paul is arrested with Silas. They're in prison. If you guys remember the story, uh, they're in prison. They're singing hymns. They're worshiping God. They're, like, they're in a jail cell praising God. Um, I don't know if I'm there yet. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be in prison for the gospel's sake and just be thanking you, Lord, praising you, God. He's worshiping. If you guys remember, the guard is asleep. As they're singing hymns and praising God, there's a great earthquake. The chains fall off. The doors open. The guard eventually wakes up and goes, oh no, what happened? The doors are open. Everyone ran. He grabs his sword. He's ready to kill himself. And right before he does, Paul's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't stop. We're here. We're here. Paul shares the gospel with this uh, Philippian jailer. He gets saved. He and his whole family get saved. They get baptized. It's an unbelievable story, but you think about this. Paul was free. He goes to prison. He's a slave in a sense. He goes to prison for preaching the gospel. The doors are open. He's free, but he, he chooses to stay. This prison guard who is free is more of a slave than Paul. In reality, the, the, here's the idea. The, the gospel is this wonderful idea. According to the gospel, no one is truly free until the Son, Jesus, sets you free. No one is truly free. Meaning, here's what, what's amazing to me about the gospel. And I want to, I don't know, slow down and be really clear, hopefully. The best way I can describe it is Jesus has come to set us free. I do believe that. Whom the Son sets free is free from indeed. And you're like, free from what? Well, free from sin, hell, death, ourselves. Just to be, to be free in him. But what does that mean? I view it as this. The prison doors are open. The chains have fallen off. He's like, I've died for you. Believe on me. It's like, I feel like part of our job is saying, look it, you're free. Jesus died for you. He paid it all. Walk out of the cell. And you're like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to stay here. Like, no, like, it's paid for. Go. It's like, I don't really know if the doors are open. I'm, I'm going to decide to stay. Here's what I mean, like salvation, eternal life. If you believe on Jesus, Jesus died for you. He, he took your place. He took a, there was a substitutionary death walk through those open doors. It's like the doors are open. The chains are off. But some of us still want to just stay in jail. And it's sad. It's like, no, just go. You're free. The whole thing for me is um, when it comes, again, to this idea of freedom, it's just, it's just interesting. I, I think the Bible, I think the New Testament has to place such a strong emphasis on this. It's weird, right? We're reading this in the year 2023, South Florida. Uh, we have different perspectives, backgrounds. You might not have been born here. You might have been born away. It's okay, but we all have different perspectives on how we maybe read the text. We don't read this as first century Jews or first century Gentiles with different backgrounds. So we have to like understand what they're going through. 
And Paul's basically saying, you have to understand, um, when the gospel went to the Gentiles, it changed everything. It changed everything about the early church and how they thought how to do church and how to do life and how to walk with God. And so I really want to try to do my best to like paint the big picture of what was going on in the church in its early days, what Paul's arguing for. So here's kind of how we'll break this down. Because again, Paul is sometimes, Peter said it, not just me. Paul's like, Peter's like, hey, Paul's difficult, man. He writes in lengthy sentences, but it's good. It's good. It's just hard. You know, so Peter's or Paul's writing sometimes like, okay, where is he going? What's he saying? It's very lengthy. Paul, last week we talked about this, but he deals with circumcision. He deals with debt. He deals with these different elements from Greek understanding to Roman understanding. Here's the best way to, for us right now to kind of break it down. Uh, the, the verse is the way how we're going to look at this is number one, he talks about Jewish legalism essentially. He says, let no one judge you. He's in deal with mysticism in the church. Let no one disqualify you is what he says. And ascetism, let no one enslave you. So if you would look at this, the verse is how we break it down. I think how Paul, Paul's like, let me kind of address different issues that were going on. There's essentially like Gnostic mysticism. There's this dualistic uh, ascetism. There is Jewish legalism. Let me kind of break it down. So as we walk through this and just stay with me, we're going to focus more on number one because I think that's more uh, relatable to our context. We'll we'll look at number two and three a little bit quicker. So we will spend more time on number one. If in case this is a little confusing to you guys, let me just point this out. If you look at legalism, mysticism, ascetism, there's an element where I don't want to be like dismissive. There's an element where it's very desirable to say, hey, when it comes to, we might say legalism, but there's a des- beautiful desire in the heart of, of people to say, I want to obey God's word and his teachings. Beautiful desire. It's crazy to think about mysticism, this idea that there's probably more that, than meets the eye. I want to have an experience with God. And there's something about like, I don't want to just know, I want to, I want to encounter him. And when you think about ascetism, there's something beautiful about saying, I want to deny my flesh. I want to say no to certain things. And, and like, so the point is, before I paint this, and you're like, these are just all bad things, there's actually beautiful desires attached to these things that the early church had. They're like, I just want to obey him. If he says to do this, I want to do this. I do want to cut things out of my life. I do want to have this, you know, almost mystical experience with God. So Paul's like, let me address these things. Because in reality, he's saying, what you are really looking for is found in Jesus and being connected to the head. So, I don't know if this is making sense. Are you guys with me so far? So, here's the first one. We're going to look at verse 16 and 17 again. Number one, legalism. He says, let no one judge you. Let's look at verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Man, these are some powerful, beautiful words. I want to just encourage you guys before I just dive right in. Um, a lot of Paul's writings in the New Testament are dealing with these issues specifically. Um, so what I, what I mean by these issues, he, in this verse, in verse 16 alone, he point, points out four big things. We'll put it up here. What you eat, eat or sorry, what you, uh, yeah, what you eat or drink, Leviticus 11, a religious festival, Leviticus 23, a new moon celebration, Numbers 10, or a Sabbath day, Leviticus 23. So the point is like, he's like dropping some ideas, really big ideas, that with a Jewish framework or mindset, you're like, oh yeah, I'm very connected to those things. If you're a Greek, or if you're a Roman living in Colossae, and you put your faith in Jesus, you're like, I'm just brand new to this. And then there's people going around and saying, awesome, you believe in Jesus, that is so wonderful. Now you must keep the law, now you must keep the Torah. And then you could imagine the heart of like, yeah, I want to obey God. I love God. I want to keep the law. I want to keep the, I want to keep the Torah. I want to keep the, the written word of God. How beautiful is that desire? And so there's this question in the early church is, okay, if you believe in Jesus, how do you now relate to the law? 
And so I want to point out verse 20 is an incredible verse that like the door hinges on verse 20. He says this, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So let me point this out as best I can. I want to slow down a little bit. Paul in Romans 7, I think gives a brilliant argument for how you and I relate to the law. In Romans 7, Paul is saying, listen, you were in a covenant with God through the law. God and man, there's this covenant. The law was the covenant. You're married to him. And he, he views this analogy in Romans 7 as marriage. If, as long as someone is alive, you're, you're married to them. You know, till death do you part. That's the idea. Either we die or the law dies. Or really, who, we're, who are we in covenant with? God. One of the most crazy thoughts to me, I want you to read Romans 7 in your own time, but one of the most beautiful and insane thoughts, God made a covenant with man through the law. There's a covenant with man. We broke the law. We, in a sense, didn't fulfill our part. And we didn't die. Who died? God died. What's unbelievable when you really think about this, even though I messed up, even though we messed up, even though we broke the law of God, the one who paid for it, the one who died for it, is God. The one who's eternal died. The eternal God died. And Paul's argument is, he died, now you can be married to another. To who? To him who died and rose again. So Romans 7 verse 4, here's the idea. He says, you also have died to the law. Everyone say died to the law. Died to the law. Through what? The body of Christ. So that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead. In order that we may bear fruit, bear fruit for God. He's like, you died to the law. Why? Because God died. You're married to another. To who? To him who rose from the dead. The New Testament talks about this idea of Christ's law. We're married to him, to this covenant with Jesus. There's obviously a lot of implications. I think that's why there's so much New Testament writing on this. I think that's why Paul's addressing this in Colossians. So here's the idea. I'm gonna go, it has to go back, I think, to Acts 10 and Acts 15. When Gentiles started getting saved, Peter has this vision. Gentiles are getting saved. God's like, what I have cleansed, you must not call common. It's beautiful. Think about this. The first people who got saved were Jews, right? Like in Acts 2, 3,000 Jews are there for Pentecost, worshiping God. They get saved. And then Gentiles start getting saved. And then the church is like, hey, hey, what do we do now? Like, this is a Jewish thing, right? Jewish savior, Jewish book, Jewish writings. And like their, their idea or their framework for how they viewed the law and how they viewed God and how they viewed Gentiles, Paul, Peter, the council, they have to get together and go, hey, we have to talk through this. The whole point was to be a light to the Gentiles. And if you remember in Acts 15, I love this like council, they get together and they say, hey, Gentiles are getting saved. They're believing on Jesus. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit. So do they need to get circumcised? Remember that topic last week? You can go back to that if you want. Um, they need to get circumcised. They need to keep the Torah. They need to keep the law of God. Like, this is what they should be doing, right? And I love what Peter, Peter stands up. He gives a phenomenal little short message and sermon. Here's what Peter says in Acts 15, verse 8. We'll put the verses up here. Peter says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. How great is that? He's like, the gospel's for everyone. I love Paul in Romans 1, 16. To the Jew first. It's to the Greek. <laughs> it's for everyone, though. He goes, uh, you know, that, that, but he gave us the Holy Spirit, as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter's like, we couldn't keep the law. What are you talking about? We couldn't do this. 
Why would we give to them what we can't do? We're saved by grace. They're saved by grace. And you say, when it comes to the law, you have to understand, no one is saved by works. I think we can agree on that part. No one's saved by works. You have been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God's the one who, who saved us. God's the one who says, no, don't, don't, you can't. So how do we relate to the law? Like, as, as Christians, and, and here's the thing, like, you hear this more and more, it's like, are we picking, are we choosing? I want to just read some, like, there's some big ideas, there's some big themes, and I want to try to break it down as best as I can, but Paul says this in Romans chapter 10. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's this beautiful idea that we are connected to this um, from the very beginning, God's plan has always been grace and faith, grace and faith. Abraham believed, and God said righteousness. Abraham believed, he had faith, and God goes, I'm going to put righteousness in your account. It's been connected to grace and faith all along. But there's still this idea of, like, but how do we relate to the law? Paul in Galatians, to me, is really breaking down this argument better, so I can't fully get into this as much as I would like. But in Galatians 3, verse 23, Paul says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. I love this because, listen, the law is beautiful. Paul says this in Romans 7 after he says, I'm died to the law and I'm married to another. He goes, the law is not evil. The law is good. The law proves and shows that I'm a sinner who could never keep this to begin with. The law shows you and me, hey, look at these commands. Whether it's the ceremonial, the cleanse laws, the sacrificial, all the different laws, the moral laws, you, you and I fall short in every way. We could never keep it. The law is not bad. It just reveals our badness. It's not bad in and of itself. But it tells you what to do, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. Paul's like, this is the problem with the law. Here's how to live, but we give you no power in how to live that way. So the law, he says, like, it falls short. You're no longer under this guardian because faith has been revealed, because Jesus is here. The law is a beautiful, I'll say this. You guys know this. I, we love here at the exchange going through books of the Bible. We just spent like a year and a half going through the Samuels and Kings. Um, we love the law. We love the prophets. We want to go through that. I think it's amazing. It points us to Jesus in beautiful ways. It creates a longing for Jesus. I think what it does is it creates an appreciation for Jesus. Oh my goodness, I could not have done it. I, I've desperately needed Jesus. Thank you, God, for fulfilling this on my behalf. Thank you for the fact that it also reveals, I believe, like your nature, your character, who you are, what you care about what you value. I love how one author puts it. It's like a beautiful light. It shines light on subject matters that we need light on. Like, wow, God actually does have an opinion on how we live and how we carry ourselves. That's, that's a beautiful thing. We should value that greatly. But I love what Paul is trying to argue from the, from the very beginning. It's Galatians 2.19, and this has kind of been the argument of the New Testament. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. It's hard because like when you get into conversations with believers who I, I believe have beautiful hearts for like, we should be keeping every word in the Torah. We should be keeping every word in the law of God. I have to like go to this and say, Paul said, I through the law died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul makes the argument, I am now married to another Tim who was raised from the dead. Jesus has a new covenant, a new commandment I give you. And he summarizes it by love one another, love God and love others. Paul in Galatians 5.13 says, the law can be summarized in one word, love. 
And I do think it's very necessary for us to look and to understand the law, to appreciate the law, to value the law, but to understand what Jesus has done for us, how he kept the law on our behalf. Paul's making this argument. You got to go back last week. The argument is, hey, Gentiles, you don't need to get circumcised. Because why? Jesus was circumcised. Meaning he kept the parts of the law you and I can never get. He kept all of it. So don't think, okay, now I believe in Jesus. Now I need to go do this. Now I need to live this way. He goes, it's been fulfilled in Jesus. Obviously, and this is where it gets tricky too, and I want to point this out. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know, it's funny when you get into conversations about this with individuals, it's like, hey, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. I'm like, I agree. We we both emphasize different things. I'm like, he came to fulfill it. We didn't come to abolish it. I'm like, I agree. The law is not, he did not come to abolish it, but he did fulfill it. And I do think that we got to like explore this and what this means more. Ben Witherington III is one of the most, I think, phenomenal authors, writers, understanders of Greek and Roman history. He writes this about Matthew 5. He says, uh, the law is not said to be lost or invalid. It is just that the fulfilled part no longer applies or acts as a norm in the dominion. A truth does not become less true simply because it is a timely truth as opposed to a timeless truth. You hear that? Thus, it is true, but only applicable to one age or covenants, covenant stage of God's people. This idea that it's, a, yes, it's a timeless truth, but it, it's also timely. Um, with this conversation, it might not be that big of a deal. You're like, just why are you spending so much time on this? Here's the idea. I think there's a beautiful heart and desire for people to say, hey, I want to keep the, all of God's word. Like, if Jesus says it, I want to do it. I, want, I think that's a beautiful heart. Like, awesome. Yes. I don't want de- to devalue the law in any way, but I do want to look and say, thank you, Jesus. It is fulfilled. It's fulfilled. I am dead to the law, so I might be alive to God. I want to say, I, I so value that we look at it, study it, appreciate it, get insight into God, his nature, his character, how he works, how he does things. Beautiful. But thank you, Jesus, that you fulfilled it on my behalf. The argu- think about this. The argument of the I had one friend was, was talking about this. He said, no, no, all of the Gentiles really wanted to become Jewish. So Paul's saying, let no one judge you because they really wanted to be Jewish. No, they had no understanding of that. They had no background of that. The idea is here's these Gentiles getting saved and, and believing on Jesus and wanting to follow him. And then there's people going, hey, you also need to do X. Awesome. You believe in Jesus and. And it was like, do these things. And here's the thing. It's been fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus, in the argument the New Testament is making, um, you, you died to the law, so you might be alive to God. He fulfilled it on your behalf. We're told to, as Jesus said in the Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, to observe all the things he commanded. So let's observe all the things he commanded. Let's go to the teachings of Jesus. Paul calls that the law of Christ. I love what David Guzik says. He says, the point is clear. Days and foods, as observed under the Mosaic law, are not binding upon new covenant people. The shadow has passed away. The reality has come. So for the Christian, all foods are pure and all days belong to God. Christians are therefore free to keep a kosher diet or to observe the Sabbath day if they please. There's nothing wrong with those things. However, they cannot think that eating kosher or Sabbath observance makes them any closer to God and they cannot judge another brother or sister who does not observe such laws. We would say this, yes, beautiful. If you want to keep a kosher diet, awesome. If you want to observe Saturday as, as the holy day, the day, awesome. You have a right to. Like you have a, and, and if you want to tie it to your Jewish, like our Jewish background, like beautiful. That is incredible. But we are not under that. Like find the value and the beauty of it, but we're not under that. And so that's the thing I, I love about this conversation, this topic. Like I also don't want to diminish those who say, I actually have like a conviction to live a kosher kind of like diet. Okay, great. Awesome. Do not assume, though, that you are more obedient and we are less obedient. 
That has been part of the conversation. I am closer to God now, or I am more obedient, and you're just a disobedient Christian. I don't think you understand what Jesus has come to set us free from and what he, died, and what he brought us into. One more author who says this, he says, uh, N.T. Wright said, the regulations of Judaism were designed for the period when the people of God consisted of one racial, cultural, and geographical unit and are simply put out of date now that this people is becoming a worldwide family. They were the shadows that the approaching new age cast before it. You know, um, you think about the early church when it was birthed and people are getting saved and it's Jews and Gentiles. This must have been so bizarre for like the Roman citizens who were more of a polytheistic culture. And here are these Jewish people believing in Jesus, the Messiah. Here are these Gentiles believing as Jesus, the Messiah. And you can imagine kind of the conversation going on. It's like, what is going on? These Jews and Gentiles are eating meals together. This is so pagan. This is so different to us. This is so foreign to us. Like what is actually happening here? And if you think about it, this is fascinating. Uh, the Romans used to call the Christians in the, the early church, we were called atheists. Like, we were called atheists. Why? Because it was just so anti-religious to them. It made no sense. This guy named Dick Lucas kind of wrote this out, and he's like, imagine from this perspective what Christians must have been, these Jews and Gentiles coming together and saying, Jesus is our Messiah, and yet this is not like a cultural thing. This is a world thing. We're not becoming Jewish. We're becoming just followers of Jesus, Yeshua. But here's what uh, this guy, Dick Lucas, says. I love this. He says, the Romans say, oh, you have a new religion. That's very interesting. Where is your temple? Imagine their perspective. Of course, you have a temple. And the Christian says, no temple. Jesus is our temple. Okay, wh where do your priests operate then, for crying out loud? We don't need priests. Jesus is our priest. No priests. All right, well, where do you offer sacrifices? Where do you do your offerings? Where do you do things so God will accept you? Jesus is our sacrifice, and we've already been accepted. What kind of religion is this? It's not a religion. This is the idea. It's just like this has been so foreign to their mindset. Like, what is going on here? He's basically saying, in Christ, everything you need is found in him. The, 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 the law was just a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. I love that imagery. It's like all of these were a beautiful, like a shadow of things to come, right? And you've probably heard it put in different ways, but like Jesus is the reality, he says. Jesus is the substance. It's really been about him from the very beginning. It is bizarre if you think about this, like today, now, because imagine I've been gone on vacation. Let's say, let's say I like leave my wife for like a few days, weeks, whatever. I come back home. It's been a while. And my wife like comes to me and like runs at me and then like hugs and kisses my shadow. And I'm like, um, what are you doing? Like, get up. Uh, and she's like, no, I just miss you so much, babe. I'm like, I'm right here. That's my shadow. Like sometimes we miss the point. He's like, the substance is Jesus. Don't go to the shadow. He's fulfilled. Like, he's, the reality has come. He's here. This is the idea that he's bringing up. But here's the point. The point is not that, again, the law is evil. It's not. In fact, it's, it's good. It reveals a lot. In fact, I think we can go to another extreme where we say, okay, we're going to live like anti-law. We're like, really, you know, just kind of be a follower of Jesus and do whatever you want. I love what Tim Keller has to say about this. And this is my last quote for this, and I'll move on. But he says this. The gospel is neither legalism nor antinomianism, meaning just free to do whatever you want. It critiques each one without falling into the error of the other. Yet it provides more moral rigor than legalism and more true freedom than antinomianism. It is no middle way. It is something else altogether. It's wonderful. It's crazy. If you've ever talked to people who think like, let me just do whatever I want, and that's freedom. Freedom means I do whatever I want. Um, I love how the author of Hebrews describes that, like sin is ensnaring and it, it really is delusional. You and I have all known that the more you kind of give into whatever you want, the less free you become. 
You think, I'm free to do what I want, and you live that way. The more you realize those are vices now you're enslaved to. You're enslaved to money, to power, to sex, to just people and their opinion of you. Like, the more you say, I'm free to do whatever I want, he goes, actually, the more enslaved you become. And so we have to see that's not necessarily free uh, just from all boundaries, but free to the right ones. I, I love this. Sometimes, because we go to these extremes where it's like, okay, God, why does Jesus even tell us how to live? Why are there prescriptive verses that say, or imperatives, here's how you ought to live? Like, why even have that? You know, it is funny, like, just even a, a basic way. If you're driving your car, and there's no lines, and there's no guardrails, and you're on the freeway, like, like no one wants that. No one wants to go in the 95 going like 90 miles per hour. There's no speed limit. There's no guardrails. Or you're on a mountain and there's curves. And it's like, mm, let's just remove all you know, guardrails and these curves, these mountains. Like, no, nah, I kind of like guardrails. Like, it's, it's not there to steal your joy. It's there to give you more fullness of joy. God's word is never to steal your joy. It is to give you more fullness of joy. It's to give you life and life more abundantly. So if God says to do something or to live a certain way, it's not because he's some killjoy. It's actually because he wants fullness of joy in your life. He wants you to live. And so you have this idea of the church kind of saying, okay, that's awesome. Believe in Jesus now live kosher. Believe in Jesus now, get circumcised. Believe in Jesus now, like fill in the blank. And the whole point is, no, those were just a shadow Christ as a substance. Cool? Can we move on? Number two is this. Yeah? We good? Number two is this. Number two, mysticism. Let no one disqualify you. There's this idea, like this mystical belief that's infiltrating the church, and please hear me on this, because this still goes around today. It's almost like we have a deeper knowledge of God, and if you could only experience what we experience, you too would feel this way and think this way. So verse 17, or let's read it, verse 18, 19. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Um, this is interesting. There were those going around saying, awesome, you believe in Jesus, but can I tell you, and they try to come off, he talks about them being puffed up. Other translations say like they had this false humility. It's like, hey, you have this right to go to God, but don't you think that's a little pompous of you to think you can go to God? You know, you can also go to angels. You can also go to the spiritual realm, and they will be like an ambassador for you. Who are we to go directly to God? And it's interesting how this idea then still exists today in different formats. It's almost like they had visions of angels. Think about a lot of different um, world religions. Think a lot about a lot of different cults. What, what, like, there's so many religions that say, hey, the angel Moroni appeared to us, or Gabriel appeared to us. Here's a new revelation. Here's a new vision. It's fascinating how it's like, hey, look, at the angel appeared and gave us another gospel. And this, we want to live in this. And here's what's interesting. I remember um, I took a class like years ago, and it compared Mormonism to uh, Islam. I, I thought it was fascinating. And just a couple things, and I try to write them out, but this is just three. You know, both of the founders, whether Joseph Smith or Muhammad, uh, both were visited by angels. Both had, an, and I didn't write it right, but both had another or new revelation. Both had a very low view of woman's role in general, but also in the role of eternity. You think about Mormon heaven is like, all right, you ready to have babies forever, honey? And women are like, that sounds like hell. Like, no, but that's like Mormon heaven. Let's go. You're just gonna be like a baby maker forever. And you think about Muslims' view of heaven. You get 70 or 72 virgins forever, and every night they renew themselves as virgins. And it's, just, it's interesting how it's very man-centered. Like, it, it, the best that man can think of is just sex forever. That's like, oh, that's heaven. All right. You know these are man-made religions. when <laughs> That's their view of eternity. And I think it's just important for us to, like, point out this. It's like there's these visions of angels, Moroni to Joseph Smith, Gabriel to Muhammad. Essentially, even in the early writings, Muhammad's like, I don't know if this is demonic or, an angel or from God. I'm just going to go with it's from God. But he, he was like, I, I, this could be maybe demonic, but no, nah, it's, it's from God. But you see the similarities, like these visions, these revelations, these views of eternity. 
the, the point is, you'll see this today in many ways, where it's like, I, I do struggle with this, whether it's Roman Catholicism or Marianism, this idea of, you know, you don't have to pray to Jesus. You can pray to a saint. You can pray to Mary. There's other mediators between God and man. When the scripture goes, no, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know, even for me, just trying to understand that, and I try to, like, almost like steal man, you know, the Catholic's perspective of praying to a saint and understanding that. I mean, I cannot get around this. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I don't need, and they're like, no, and there's this false humility, but we don't, listen, we go to angels, or we go to this saint, or we go to something else. And Paul is saying in this mysticism, he says, let no one disqualify you, meaning there's people who are telling you about their visions of and, and the angels appearing to them. And maybe you feel like, well, I'm not getting visions of angels. I feel lesser than. He goes, no, no, you have Jesus. You're connected to the head. They're not connected to the head. Don't think because they're having some mystical experience that you're missing out. First of all, it's probably not mystical in the way they're describing. In fact, Paul even writes later in Corinthians, he goes, you know what? Angels or demons can even appear to be as angels of light. Fallen angels can even have that appearance of light. So he's just constantly just saying, just don't fall into that trap. But there's something beautiful also at the same time. Like there's something wonderful. Like I want you guys to encounter God. I want you guys to experience God. I don't want it to just be this head knowledge thing. So you can see why this like plays into the, like the heart posture of man. Like, yes, we should desire to have an, a beautiful encounter with God. But sometimes you can hear stories and it's like, well, why are all these people getting all these visions and different things? And I'm getting nothing. And Paul is saying, no, no, you have Jesus. You're connected to the head. You have everything you need. Don't feel lesser than. He says, let no one disqualify you. Are you following like his, his thinking? I love what Griffith Thomas wrote. He says, most writers interpret the words of humility which led men to worship angels thinking God was unapproachable except through the mediation of celestial beings. It's a false humility. It's this false idea. You can go straight to him. You can go straight to God because of Jesus and by Jesus and what he's done for you. He is that mediator. C.S. Lewis points this out. He goes, everyone has this weird desire to feel like they're on the inner inside. Like, oh, I'm on the inside of that. He writes about this. He says, of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. The desire to want to be on the inner ring, I want to be on the, like, on the in. The desire to want to be on the in can take men to do very bad things. This was happening in religion, cults, the occults. This desire to feel like I got something deeper and more can lead you to do a lot of stupid and bad things, essentially, he says. He goes, hold fast to the head. Hold fast to Jesus. So he goes, hey, let no one judge you when it comes to this Judaistic, legalistic mindset. When it comes to mysticism, this Gnostic mysticism, you're not missing out. You're connected to the head. And lastly, he kind of speaks in this dualistic um, ascetism. So number three is this, ascetism, let no one enslave you. Here's how he closes out kind of calling out these uh, wrong ideas. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, so to clarify, what's ascetism? Ascetism teaches that one can purify the spirit by punishing the body. And you can see this in a lot of like Eastern, maybe like 
Buddhistic kind of mindsets, like if I can just deny the body, I may be more spiritual, I may be more holy. Again, I have to point this out. There is something about this that actually plays into like the works of the flesh. Like it actually feels good and prideful. Like, look, I fasted for how many days God spoke to me. Again, by my works, I now have this inner, and you can almost see the boast of that. But there's also the other side where like, we're called to live this way. We're called to say no to the flesh. So it appeals to us in so many different ways. This is why I'm bringing this up. But he's saying, no, no, there are people just saying like, because of what we don't do, that's our definition of why we're a good person. And Paul's saying, it's not so much about what you don't do, it's about what Jesus did. So it's not, it's like, well, look at me. Look at all the things I don't do. I, I don't enjoy food. I don't enjoy partying. I don't enjoy, and he's like, that's not, that's not it either. It's cool because here's what I love about God. Um, God created the earth, everything in it. It's good. God created everything. It's good. We perverted it. We ruined it. We wrecked it. But when God created it, it's good, man. I love this. God actually wants you to enjoy things. Understand this, because the ascetism idea, God is not some cosmic killjoy that's like, oh, you're having fun? That's sin. Once you hit the level of fun, it's sin. Oh, yeah, that's not it either. You know, I love Ecclesiastes because he actually speaks into this. Ecclesiastes 3, listen to this. This is our God. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12. He says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. God is not like, I just want you to stop doing anything that resembles. God's like, hey, work hard. From the, like, work and enjoy the fruit of your labor. It's a gift. It's a beautiful gift. Now, it's not saying, again, this antinomianism, like, I'm going to now overindulge. It's not that either. I love it. It's, it's not legalism. It's not antinomianism. As Keller says, it's just completely, it's not even in the middle. It's a completely different way of living. You're saying, God, I thank, thank you that you created everything good. Sin perverted it. I want to enjoy you. I, want, I love how Paul says this in Corinthians, right? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I want to do the simple things and give you glory, give you praise. It's not so much about, like, don't do this, and now, therefore, because you don't do these things, you're more holy. Because the reality is we could stop doing everything and still have a wicked heart. The reality is you could, you could say, I'm not going to do all these things, and your heart could still be far from God. When Jesus says this in Matthew 5, I want you just to hear this, and I want to end with this thought, but Jesus says in Matthew 5, uh, verse 29, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members uh, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better than you lose one of your members than your whole body uh, go into hell. Let's just think about this. And this teaching from Jesus. We would be a lot of limbless, eyeless, blind. Like, we'd be a lot of... Like, but Jesus is saying something beautiful, which is, when it comes to sin, be radical about it. When it comes to sin, like, take it serious. You know, if we, if we do take the literal translation, we'd have no hands, no eyes, no ears, no, no, like nothing. But Jesus is saying, hey, because the whole point is this, we cut off every part of us and still have a sinful, disgusting heart. It's not so much about just like cutting off these bodies. It's like God, and that's the whole point of Colossians. Remember, it's like circumcision is of the heart. Every, what God has been after all along has been your heart. So you could fast and still fast for self-righteous reasons and be in sin. You could say no to some things that you should say no to, but to do it to feel prideful and feel like, look what I've done. And you still miss the point. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. This is the idea. It's like, yes, there's a time and place for us saying we're going to deny our flesh or we're going to fast, or we're going to be generous, like we're going to give, we're going to, we're going to give these things away, do these things, but it does not make you more righteous. You have Christ's righteousness. You can't get more righteous than that. You can't give enough to be like, okay, now I gave so much, I'm more righteous than Jesus. You just can't get there. So this beautiful thing is everything you need is Paul's point. Everything you need is found in him. The victory you need, the freedom you need. Don't try to work for it. Don't try to feel like, look what I've done or accomplished, or now I'm closer to God, therefore. He goes, no, be connected to the head. 
be joined to him. We can miss the point. I want to end with this last thought because this uh, author named Kent Hughes summarizes this passage so well. And I just want to respond by worshiping, but here's what he says. The answer, listen, the answer to legalism is the continual realization of the grace of Christ. The answer to mysticism is an understanding of how profoundly we are related to Christ. You can't get closer than you already are to him. The answer to ascetism is the reckoning that we have died, been buried, and are resurrected with Christ. The answer is where it all began at the foot of the cross. This is it. Just at the foot of the cross. We don't graduate that. We don't leave that. This is not an excuse to go do whatever you want. You've been saved by grace. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? This, this grace should radically change you. But the point is, it just brings you time and time again to the cross. Like everything, it just brings you, oh God, I cannot do this without you. Thank you for the cross. God, I can never get more holy or righteous. I can never get closer to you than what you, you came to earth. You came to me. You died for me. You pursued me. I can't get, I can't be on the inner circle. I can't have a deeper revelation. Remember the whole idea of the Gnostics, of the Jewish, the Jewish, like the Judaizers was this idea of you really want to be close to God? Do these things. Or you really want to have the pleroma, as the Greeks would say, you want to have this fullness? Believe these things. And he's saying it's found in Jesus. It's not found in those things. It's found in Jesus. It brings us back to the foot of the cross. I just would love to end by saying, um, Jesus, bring my perspective back to the foot of the cross. Church, what's the point of just studying this and like going, okay, I maybe agree, don't agree, whatever. Can we just go back to the cross? Can we just go back to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, that you've paid it all? Can we end our time on Sunday not just by saying, all right, that's the Bible study for today. Good luck this week. And like, no, can we just go, hey, we actually really just need Jesus and the cross and his death and his resurrection to be the things by which we see everything else? And can it be Jesus and his finished work and what he's done for me that I walk in that? I walk in his victory. I enjoy him in that way. I would just love to end our time together by just worshiping Jesus. Can we do that? I'm going to pray, invite the worship team up, and let's just worship. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the fact, again, that the, the handwriting of requirement, the debt, was nailed to the cross. Jesus, we just want to say thank you that you are the head. We want to be connected to you. This is your church. You are the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd. This is your body, Lord. We just want to um, be connected to you, Lord. God, I ask for myself and everyone in this room, you know where our heart kind of just lingers. You know if we are more prone to the legalistic side, if we're more prone to that, that liberal self-indulgent side. God, we ask that Jesus, we just come to you and just sit at the foot of the cross and say thank you for what you've done. That, that that would be the thing that transforms us, not by our might, but by your spirit. Lord, we just want to say thank you. We need you. We want to praise you now in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Church, why don't you just stand, worship. If you want prayer, we'll be up here for prayer, but we just want to close our time by thanking him for what he's done, all right? We'd love to pray with you, but let's just worship.